This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. There were several key books of the Bible that that are left out of William Branham's ministry. And these books, for all intents and purposes, are the companions to the books that Branham preached with the most passion, some of which give closure to the open-ended prophecies from their counterparts. Considering the symbolism and prophecy, and how easily that we can apply these symbols to our day and age, it's very dangerous to preach these, seem- these symbols while seemingly avoiding God's word through other prophets describing the same subject material. The Pentecostal movement itself is fundamentally based on the prophecy of Joel, specifically chapter 2. Reading the 28th and 29th verse alone, and without the rest of the book as full context, it would seem as though the Azusa Street Revival was scripturally found in Joel, right before their very eyes, in the 28th and 29th verses. It's like they were coming alive with signs and wonders that seemed to have come directly from God. Joel 2, 28-29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days will I pour out my spirit. It's Joel 2, 28-29. These verses are two that William Branham promoted all throughout his ministry, following the path that was laid down by the mysterious John Ryan, who Branham claims to have been some sort of mentor, while evading ties by giving conflicting stories of which John Ryan he was describing. Ryan is believed to have been from the House of David commune in Bitten Harbor, about an hour's drive from Mishawaka, Indiana, where Branham learned the Pentecostal influence. But like the Apostolic House of David, the followers of John Alexander Dowie and the followers of Charles Taze Russell and many other Pentecostal teachers whose ideas that Branham promoted Branham pointed this prophecy of Joel to the Azusa Street Revival and what would later become known as the Latter Rain. This prophecy from Joel describes a former and a latter rain, 
which many apply to mean the seasons of rain. They view the, ver the first season or the former rain to the original day of Pentecost and claim that the Pentecostal movement, the later one, was the latter rain, which Joel prophesied. By applying these two seasons of rain, one might assume that Joel's symbolism pointed to the seasons of spring and autumn, the rainy seasons in Israel. However, to make this association, you must avoid the rest of the chapter. God describes how he will pour out his provisions on the crops, giving Israel abundance after having punished them with famine for abandoning the Old Covenant. Studying Jewish history and the curse of the law, it's quite obvious that Joel is referring to a physical rain that was needed to restore the wheat and the wine and the oil that Israel could not produce during the famine brought on by the curse. But taking the Pentecostal approach of symbolism, ignoring Jewish history, and taking this approach of turning the wheat, wine, and oil into symbols, we're forced to look at the same time those things which are, are specifically to occur during Joel's prophecy. And that takes us into a study of the day of the Lord. Another problem we find is that Pentecostal's interpretation of the day of the Lord is quite different than what we would expect. In many instances, especially in the King James translation, we find that the day of the Lord is correctly yet incorrectly translated as the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I say incorrectly because the meaning of our word terrible today has a much different meaning than in the day when the translation was written. Newer translations use the word like awesome, but actually should use more important words like incredible, wonderful, or the greatest day ever. The day of the Lord in Hebrew text is written as Yahweh Yom, meaning Yahweh's day. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 31, it uses the word terrible to describe this day in the King James Version, though the newer translations use awesome. Joel 2.31 in the King James Version says, The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. This word terrible comes from the Hebrew word hagdal, which has a meaning greater than our word awesome. It is used throughout the Bible for using, for instances, like better, for bitter, for exceedingly, for greatest, for marvelous, and many other words that we separate in our English language. Multiple days of the Lord are described, from the fall of Egypt to the fall of Babylon to the fall of Edom, but there is one specific day of the Lord that was coming that would be like no other. And when you read the for only the first or the last two verses of chapter in Joel, it would seem like this coming day was in our future. In fact, if you only read Joel's prophecy, avoiding the same books that we don't find preached in Branham's ministry, then it still seems like this day is in our future. The last two verses in Joel, when taking, taken physically instead of symbolically, describe events that we have not yet seen in this world. Joel 2, 30-32 says, I will show signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome or terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, and as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. It's Joel 2, 30-32. But I find this ironic. Pentecostalism has trained our minds to read every single thing in this chapter symbolically. The oil and the wine represent one thing, while the palmer worm, the canker worm, and the locust represent another. The former and latter rain have been taken from their physical fulfilled prophecy to mean something entirely different, taking God's restoration of Israel in the Old Testament and then applying it to the 20th century. But while taking this entire chapter symbolically, Pentecostalism has trained our minds to take the signs in the heavens physically. We've not yet seen the moon turn to blood. And we've not yet seen the stars refusing to shine, the sun darkened, or pillars of fire and smoke ascending into the heavens. Or have we? The Gospels describe the crucifixion, and for three hours, from the sixth to the ninth hour, complete darkness filled the land. Interestingly, Oxford University has studied the events in the heaven during the time of the crucifixion, and their conclusion describes the same exact thing. A lunar eclipse that would have caused the moon to be a reddish hue by refracting light through the Earth's atmosphere. The moon's color during a lunar eclipse is called a moon of blood because of its color. And this taken from the, <clears throat> the date of the Crucifixion Journal of American Scientific affiliation from Humphreys. It says, This eclipse was visible from Jerusalem at moonrise, first visible at about 6.20 p.m., the start of the Jewish Sabbath, and also the start of the Passover in A.D. 33, <coughs> with about 20% of its disk in the umbra of the earth's shadow. The eclipse finished some 30 minutes later at 6.50 p.m. But while the followers of William Branham would deny science to say that these things did not happen, and though they do not realize it, they are arguing directly with the Apostle Peter, who says that they did happen. According to Peter, Joel's prophecy of the day of the Lord had been fulfilled, which points this great and awesome day to the day when Christ died for our sins. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he actually reads Joel's prophecy. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. <clears throat> For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit among all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will see dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in the days of my spirit. They shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness 
and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Peter, Acts 2, 14 through 21. All of the Old Testament prophets had one thing in common. They all said the same thing over and over and over. God was speaking through them, declaring Israel's failure to uphold the law. They spoke of punishment for abandoning that law. And last, they pointed to the Messiah who would one day come to restore them to their former state. All of the Old Testament prophets did this. And in many cases, the day of the Lord describes a day when the Lord is one and His name is one. And that day is fulfilled in Christ. Through Christ, His name is one. And Christ is one with the Father, one with the Spirit. We all serve a living God, and all who believe Christ are now offered salvation. When Joel describes the day of the Lord, his words are very clear. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter was correct. This day was at Pentecost. Not the day in the 20th century that has produced false prophets, false teachers, and division among the church, but the day when the Holy Spirit fell on all flesh. Now everyone who calls in the name of Jesus can be saved. When Isaiah describes the day of the Lord, he describes several key elements that also describe the day when Christ came. For instance, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. <clears throat> Herod's massacre of the innocents, Isaiah says, their infants shall be dashed in pieces before their eyes. The day when Jesus saw Satan fall like a star from the heaven, Isaiah says, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? Isaiah 14, 12. Again in Jer Jeremiah, we find the same thing. God speaking through Jeremiah concerning the day of the Lord, he declares that he himself holds a sacrifice. And that sacrifice will take place north of the Euphrates River. And Jerusalem is about 300 miles to the north. Jeremiah 14.10 says, For the Lord of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. But the best description of the day of the Lord pointing to the cross at Calvary is found in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah says, Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Zephaniah 1, verse 7. But Zephaniah also describes a day of wrath, which is separate from the day of the Lord. All who find salvation in Mount Zion are saved, but all who do not accept Christ will suffer the day of wrath. Zechariah 14 is interesting because there are an incredible number of references to the Gospels. The most obvious is the very last verse of the chapter, which points to Jesus overthrowing the money tables in the temple. Zechariah 14.21 says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Zechariah starts by describing the hours of darkness after the crucifixion. And this verse will sound very familiar to many. 
Branham pointed this verse away from Christ and towards his own ministry. Zechariah 14, 6-7 says, And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known unto the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening time there shall be light. But again, Zechariah declares the rise of Christianity. The day when Christ ascended to the Father, we are now fellow heirs to the kingdom through Christ. You'll find this statement in many instances of prophecy that are declaring the day of the Lord. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Interestingly, Zechariah also describes the disease that was plaguing the house of Herod. Many have surmised that Herod suffered a sexually transmitted disease due to its symptoms. But either way, history records Herod suffering from an affliction that caused his skin to rot while he was still living. Zechariah 14.12 says, And this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And their tongues shall rot in their mouths is interesting. Because according to Josephus, Herod's disease caused a very foul odor in his mouth. But still focusing on Herod, Zechariah describes the invasion of the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors that brought Mary and Joseph into Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.14 says, Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and all the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Zechariah 14.14 And if you were to take Joel's prophecy of the former and the latter reign symbolically, then you're also forced to take Zechariah's prophecy symbolically. The same reign that was prophesied by Joel in this case is prophesied by Zechariah when taken from symbol. Zechariah 14.17 says, If any of the families of the, of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts will send, there will be no rain on them. But the last two verses have the most broad-reaching scope. We find that they start with the crucifixion, the day when Christ fulfilled the old covenant of law, and Israel entered into the new covenant of grace. But at the same time, they do not realize the impact that this had on their lives. It was not until Paul came to announce the new high priest to the Hebrews. And only then could they have understood the scope of this passage. Zechariah describes a time when all of the sacrificial bowls were brought before the Lord in Jerusalem and Judea to bring their offering. No longer were they unclean. Christ had made them clean through his sacrifice. Zechariah 14, 20-21 says, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. That's Zechariah 14, 20-21. But the most important thing to realize, when programmed with the teaching of William Branham 
and the other Malachi four prophets like him. Is the prophecy of Malachi that is pointing to Christ and how it's been refocused. While Malachi is prophesying of Christ our Redeemer, these Elijah prophets like Branham and John Alexander Dowie have pointed scriptures to themselves as the coming Redeemer. Malachi 4 describes the coming day of the Lord, and it is a day that will set us on fire. The arrogant scribes and the Pharisees will be rooted out, and Christianity would thrive. Malachi 4, 1 through 2 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's Malachi 4, 1 through 2. But remember, on this day of the Lord, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. All of the prophets proclaim and declare Christianity. Malachi is no different. God was sending his only son, Jesus Christ, and he would heal the wounds that were placed on Israel by the curse of the law. Malachi 4.2 says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And Malachi goes on to describe the day when Jesus sent out the 72, and how excited they were when they returned to Jesus and said, Even the demons are subject to them. Malachi 4, 2-3 says, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you'll tread down the wicked, for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi reminds us of the old covenant that they had broken. They were still bound by the Mosaic law, and God pauses for remembrance. Malachi 4.4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. <clears throat> and Malachi describes John the Baptist, who Jesus told that the, the disciples, he said that it was the Elijah that would come. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome, or terrible, day of the Lord comes. But the greatest verse of this entire chapter is describing the day when the Lord will be one and his name will be one. On that day, like no other day that was before and like no other day that would ever come, it was a day when restoration would come to Israel. The curse of the law would be lifted. And it would be lifted before the final curse, which was utter destruction. God would redeem them from the curse of the law before wiping mankind from the face of the earth. And this scripture has been pointed away from God and towards men. These men that point these scriptures to themselves have one thing in common. A religious following that has separated themselves from other Christians. Had they pointed this scripture to Christ... Instead of themselves, they would have remained part of the body. Malachi 4, verse 6 says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and with a decree of utter destruction strike the land. This scripture points to Christ, not man. 
Had Christ not died on the cross for us, had he not redeemed us from the curse of the law, and had he not fulfilled the old covenant that we could never fulfill, there was one penalty, and that was death. The death of mankind. Christ came to restore Israel into the grace of the fathers. He came to remove the law and lift the curse of the law. Christ came to die so that we might live.